When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, everyone. It's Emma. Welcome to today's episode of the Professional Book Nerds podcast sponsored by Overdrive. In this episode, I sit down and chat with Jill and Joe, and we share all of our favorite royal reads, whether they're based on real people or simply inspired by all the way from the Tudors to the House of Windsor. We hope you enjoy today's episode. And don't forget that you can find us on social media at ProBookNerds on Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. You can also email us at professionalbooknerds at overdrive.com or go to our website, professionalbooknerds.com. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. Happy reading. I feel like we're going to be in a silly, goofy mood again. I mean, it's the it's afternoon. Yeah. It's like the on afternoon, Monday, raining on Monday. It's very British weather. So it, you know what it is. Also, my cat has decided to join. So that's yeah. There's a deal. <laughs> Free microphone boop. Um, I've suddenly lost all words and thoughts. But today we're going to talk about royal reads, uh, British royals or otherwise. Although I think most of our Picks focus on the various monarchies uh, in Great Britain over the years. So let's dive right in. I was going to try to say something punny and clever with like tea. Um, alas, not happening. So I first royally read great use of English there. Uh, my first pick is HRH. So many thoughts on Royal style by Elizabeth Holmes. And that's a very casual title, in my opinion, to something that, um, you know, isn't usually quite formal and regal. And that's because Elizabeth Holmes started the so many thoughts on Royal style um, on Instagram and did a whole series on their fashion choices and just all of the different thoughts she had on um, primarily uh, Queen Elizabeth, Diana. Kate and Megan. And so the book covers each woman, um, very thoroughly and their evolution and fashion choices. It has lots of really gorgeous images. Um, it obviously ties the fashion choices over the years from the women kind of to each other. So currently Kate and Megan, there were a lot of draws to the past inspiration from Diana or Elizabeth in terms of color palettes or jewelry or hats or things like that. And I think that's fascinating that their outfits are so, so, so curated and strategic when like most days I throw on like a hoodie and leggings. Was that a call <laughs> out for what I'm wearing right now? <laughs> no, but it's just like, it's wild that it, there's so much thought behind what goes into their appearance. And it's like a whole, it's a whole industry. I mean, they'll sell out an item of clothing or a label they'll produce. Like it kind of makes me think of that scene in the devil wears Prada where they're talking about like, you know, cerulean cerulean. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. I almost said like lapis, which was not right at all um, about how just things trickle down. And I think that these these four women of the last however many decades have been hugely influential in style in general, not just in England. Yeah, it's really amazing to consider how they map out every single look that it started really with Diana to as like a PR campaign to make her likable and relatable and then turned into a marketing strategy and uh, to have Kate like all of her outfits mirror outfits from similar times in Diana's life. Um, and now I, 
I saw it on TikTok. There is a company that is recreating some of the iconic sweaters and sweatshirts that Diana wore. So you can have like the same print and whatnot um, for your own life. And I may or may not be in need of one of those or purchasing one for our inevitable return to the office. (laughs) Ah, I would be down with that. And like Mm -hmm. the resurgence of like, Diana fashion even now like the crew neck sweatshirts and bike shorts and Mm -hmm. like that mix of casual but put together um is wild to see that that's what's come back full circle like you know 30 years later uh it makes me feel really old (laughs) that we're seeing things now for the second or third time (laughs) yes because some of those fashion choices I'm not so sure need to come back not like no you know Mm -hmm. she's a style icon but it was that time period of the 80s and 90s we all made questionable decisions in terms of clothes and so some of these things that are being sold in like urban outfitters today I know I wore as like a toddler or to kindergarten and all of the heartthrob characters uh, now look like Jonathan Taylor Thomas I don't know it's at least the middle part. Yeah. The- yeah. But that's just wild to me that like bike shorts, something mm-hmm. that she wore mm-hmm. that I think was quite controversial for a, you know, a member of the Royal family yeah. to have, you know, bike shorts in their repertoire, no matter what the fashion was. And we've come full circle where like, why am I even entertaining the notion of bike shorts? I don't know. And it's because you want to look you know, like this put together, but casual Diana vibes. And um, that book, that book, that look is um, so iconic to her. I think it's fascinating. And circling back to the book, um, that was HRH, So Many Thoughts on Royal Style by Elizabeth Holmes. Um, We could talk about the clothes, I'm sure for the entirety of this podcast, but I know we have lots of picks to get through. So why don't I hand it over to one of you for one of your picks? Sure. Uh, My first pick is Elizabeth the Queen by Sally Bettle Smith. And from the moment of her ascension to the throne in 1952, at the age of 25, Queen Elizabeth II has been the object of unparalleled scrutiny. But through the fog of glamour and gossip, how well do we really know the world's most famous monarch? Drawing on numerous interviews and never-before-revealed documents, acclaimed biographer Smith pulls back the curtain and shows in intimate detail the public and private lives of Elizabeth II, who has led her country and commonwealth through the wars and upheavals of the last 60 years with unparalleled composure, intelligence, and grace. So we meet the young Queen Elizabeth, who suddenly becomes heiress presumptive when her uncle abdicates the throne. Then we meet the 13-year-old Lilibet as she falls in love with a young Navy cadet named Philip and becomes determined to marry him, even though her parents prefer a wealthier English aristocrat. And so we basically just see her in her teenage years repairing army trucks, standing with Winston Churchill on the balcony of Buckingham Palace on the E-Day. We see the young queen struggling to balance the demands of her job with the role um, or at, with her role as the mother of two young children. And then uh, Smith will bring us inside the palace doors and into the queen's daily routines, the red boxes of documents she reviews each day, the weekly meetings she's had with 12 prime ministers, her physically demanding tours abroad, and the constant scrutiny of the press, as well as her personal relationships, Prince Philip, um, her children, their disastrous marriages, her grandchildren, and her friends. So kind of a lovely piece to kind of look at Queen Elizabeth from the earliest days until more recently. You know, of course, this one doesn't cover the death of Philip. It's crazy when you think about it, that this woman's been in this role as queen for 70 years. Yeah. And so to hearken back to like her childhood, like, and then all the different stages of her life and all the different things she's witnessed, like, I think she's probably, a. I don't know, obviously I'm not <laughs> British, but she's probably like a source of stability and comfort, I think for people just in that she's been you know, Mm -hmm. that figure for so long and has spanned so many big world events, changes, milestones that I think that that's, that it's always so interesting to look at her life, um, 
you know, over the many, many decades that she's performed these duties. And the people that she survived, like, yeah, I mean, exactly. So, um, I'm going to go speak this actually fashion related. So it sort of works. So my first one is, uh, the gown, a novel of the Royal wedding by Jennifer Robeson. So this, uh, set starts in London, 1947, besieged by the harshest winter in living memory, burdened by owner shortages and rationing, the people of post-war Britain are enduring lives of quiet desperation despite their nation's recent victory. Among them are Anne Hughes and Miriam Dassin, embroiders at the famed Mayfair Fashion House of Norman Hartnell. Together they forge an unlikely friendship, but their nascent hopes for a brighter future are tested when they are chosen for a once-in-a-lifetime honor taking part in the creation of Princess Elizabeth's wedding gown. Then we have in Toronto 2016, more than half a century later, Heather, Heather seeks to unravel the mystery of a set of embroidered flowers, a legacy from her late grandmother. How did her beloved Nan, a woman who never spoke of her old life in Britain, come to possess the priceless embroideries that so closely resembled the motifs on the stunning gown worn by Queen Elizabeth II at her wedding almost 70 years before? And what was her nan's connection to the celebrated textile artist and the Holocaust survivor, Miriam Dassin? So first, I love me some historical fiction that like has two timelines and there's like a connection there. But I think, um, you know, when you think about like the fashion and especially something like a wedding dress, you know, it reminds me of here in America, like the first ladies at the inaugural ball, like who is the designer and they like to sometimes pick these like unknown designers. Like, can you imagine? They're like, yeah, we're going to make Queen Elizabeth's wedding dress. Uh, okay. That, that seems like a big deal. <laughs> How do we even begin to process that? And yeah. Yeah. I, I can't imagine the idea of like, oh yeah, these, these nobodies are, <laughs> are now responsible for this soon to be iconic piece. It also immediately made me think of seeing Diana's wedding dress in person. Yeah. yeah, just to be tasked with a garment that you know just so many eyes are going to be on to like or dislike or critique. Like I'm sure, I mean, the the benefit outweighs maybe the the notoriety, but imagine the pressure you would feel in the lead up to, you know, the big reveal of the the dress. Right. I'm glad you mentioned this book because I forgot to. <laughs> I was surprised it was not on your list. I was like, I was expecting mm-hmm. it to be on there. So I know See, I got you. I got you. We, well, cause that's Teamwork. the thing is, well, we, I love a, you know, I love a book about, you know, the real Royals, but we also really enjoy an inspired by tale, um, which is perfect for my next two picks. I'm lumping them together. Cause, um, they're a series. I'm positive. I've talked about them at some point on the podcast, but they're just so good. And these books are the Royal We um, by Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan and the sequel, The Air Affair. So these books are not super new. They came out in 2015 and 2020, I think respectively. But what I do think is fascinating is that the Royal We follows an American girl who goes to Oxford and accidentally falls in love with a prince. And so it was largely inspired by like um, William and Kate's romance, but it like eerily predicted Megan and Harry's whole thing. That's fascinating that as fans of the Royal family and authors and things like that, that they, they, I guess, you know, predicted what was to come in this fictional setting. And when I was looking up books for this episode, I was reading an interview that um, Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan did with Vanity Fair. And I wanted to quote this because I thought it was so good. But um, Heather says in the interview with Vanity Fair that the royal family is like the world's longest running soap opera. And I thought that was a real, I just thought that was a really good way to describe it because even from like, Henry and all of his like six wives and all of those things. You've had all of these really interesting people through history that are notable in many, many ways. And it, it just, just feel like, you know, love it or not the world's longest running soap opera family, you know, dynasty drama. And I thought that was just a great way to put it. So 
while these books are totally fictional and just inspired by, I love a good, you know, American girl becomes a princess. Cause that was always like the dream, you know, in middle school and high school, like, obviously I'm just going to go to England and marry a prince. Um, so yeah, in the Royal, we Bex Porter does just that. And then in the sequel, the air affair, it picks up after they're married and navigating Royal life. So lots of calls to, um, real people and real events, but very much takes place in its own world. So again, that is the Royal We and the Air Affair by Heather Cox and Jessica Morgan. And yeah. oh, go well, ahead. I say, like, no, I think you're right. I, I, I like that quote in Vanity Fair, because when you think about the actual family tree, it's, it's long and extensive and there's yeah. just a like, weird divergence based on royal protocol and the royal uh line of succession and it's all bananas yeah it's fascinating and even like in in like popular culture now like I'm thinking Bridgerton you know where I was googling you know the real queen Charlotte or the real king whatever and you're you're like wait there's so many things that are just fantastical that you can't believe these are real people and these are their real stories. And like, yes, this, these monarchs had 15 children and then their, (laughs) you know, their 15 children had children. And like, it's just, um, I do think that's why it's fascinating because there are so many areas there that you can find something that's interesting to you. It's wild. And and again, yeah, it's like, it's centuries old. So there's certainly something that appeals. And I think a lot of our picks, um, are set in modern times or pertain to the Windsors, but the Tudors and all the other generations are certainly just as fascinating. Um, so I, I have two books about the Tudors on my list. So thanks, Emma. I'm going to jump on in here. Um, yeah, so I'm people who've listened to this podcast know that I'm like kind of obsessed with the Tudors and love them. And, um, have read many books fiction and nonfiction so I have a fiction pick and a nonfiction pick my fiction pick okay it's the Bolin inheritance by Philippa Gregory first as a full-on disclaimer I'm well aware that Philippa just like totally makes up history I'm I know that so just I know but (laughs) I've talked about um the other Bolin girl multiple times I don't on the podcast I don't know if I've ever talked about the Bolin inheritance which comes after that and it is about it takes place after the death of Henry's third wife, Jane Seymour, who has the only one to give him a son, but she dies in childbirth. And so the book is about Henry's fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, and his uh, fifth wife, Catherine Howard, who was, Anne came from like, what would eventually be Germany, like that kind of area. Um, there was a portrait of her that was sent ahead of time king henry's like yeah i like her and then she shows up and he doesn't think she looks anything like the photo like not photo portrait and gets mad and there's like a situation where she doesn't realize it's him and it's a big misunderstanding it's a whole mess and then Catherine howard was like a teenager when the very much older king henry like pursues her while married to anne of cleves and it's, you know, it's Philippa Gregory taking history and doing what she does with it. But it's, <laughs> but, but she I, writes them so well, though. She does. She does write them very well. She like really captures that intrigue and of the court and the dynamics of the relationships. And honestly, of all of the six wives, uh, Anna Cleves probably got the best deal out of them all. So just saying that. But I really like this because I do, I mean, of the wives, I think. You know, Anne is like my favorite next to Anne Boleyn. So like the two Anne's, I like the two Anne's. And so, yeah. So if you've read the other Boleyn girl and you're interested in some of the other wives as told by Philippa Gregory, there's the Boleyn inheritance. But speaking of the first Anne, my other book is a nonfiction book called The Lady in the Tower. It's by Alison Weir. She is a Tudor historian, English monarchy historian. She's written about others, uh, monarchy families too. But This is the fall of Anne Boleyn. So this is a book that is dedicated to Anne's, um, like the last days of her life from like how she got to there in the tower, 
and being beheaded and um spoiler alert Anne Boleyn was beheaded um <laughs> but her <laughs> trial and everything surrounding the trial and how that all came about and her arrest and especially if you have read the other Boleyn girl the there's a subplot involving Anne Boleyn and her brother in the other Boleyn girl that's not really based on accuracy to some degree like Anne was totally set up um and so this is a nice sort of counter to that with historical detail about what those last days were like and you know the uh the question of the like men at court who surrounded her and what was really happening there so um yes Bolin Inheritance by Philippa Gregory and the Lady in the Tower by Alison Weir are are my tutor picks for this one. We love a historical spoiler alert. <laughs> I just, I mean, I, I know. I'm like, if nobody knows that Anne Boleyn lost her head, there's probably, if by now you are not we, aware of that. We can't help you with that now. <laughs> we can't no. help you with that now. Also, um, I'm pretty sure that Six is coming to Cleveland here, the Playhouse Square, and I'm so excited about seeing that musical. Yes. Like our co- our coworker Andrea and I were already talking about it because we've also talked about our love for the Tudor. So, just if you are in Cleveland, I'm pretty sure Six is going to be part of the Playhouse Square package. This is recording before they announce, but I'm just putting it out there. But anxiously awaiting, anxiously uh, waiting for the official yes. <laughs> official announcement. Keep checking my inbox. <laughs> So I will give my only fiction title to kind of compliment Emma and Jill's fiction titles. Uh, This one came out just about a year ago in 2021. And this is the the new series, Her Majesty the Queen Investigates. Uh, This is the Windsor Knot by S.J. Bennett. So had to throw out a little, you know, cozy mystery uh, that the queen is trying to solve. So it is the early spring of Queen and Queen Elizabeth is at Windsor Castle in advance of her 90th birthday celebrations, but the preparations are interrupted by the shocking and untimely death of a guest in one of the castle bedrooms. The scene leads some to think the young Russian pianist strangled himself, yet a badly tied knot leads MI5 to suspect foul play. When they begin to question the household's most loyal servants, Her Majesty knows they're looking in the wrong place. For the queen has been living an extraordinary double life ever since her teenage years as Lilibet. Away from the public eye and unbeknownst to her closest friends and advisors, she has the most brilliant skill for solving crimes. With the help from her assistant private secretary, Rosie Oshodi, a British-Nigerian officer recently appointed to the Royal House Artillery, the queen discreetly begins making inquiries. As she carries out her royal duties with usual aplomb, no one in the royal household, the government, or the public knows that the resolute Elizabeth won't hesitate to use her keen eye, quick mind, and steady nerve to bring a murderer to justice. So uh, it, this book does a really great job of capturing Elizabeth's voice and like her nuance and her wit, and it is really charming and imaginative. And... Uh, <sighs> It's kind of like, I don't know, I'm going to say Murder, She Wrote. When won't I take the opportunity to say Murder, She Wrote? But if you wanted to imagine a world where the queen lives a double life as like a PI, this is for you. I love that so much. And that reminds me of a different cozy mystery series that I'm frantically looking for. It is Kensington Palace Chef Mystery. It might not might it might not be this one, but I know there are several set in, you know, the royal residences mm-hmm. that incorporate the real characters. And I I love it. I love it. Yes. Um, it's like fun fan fiction kind of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Those ones are uh Kale to the Queen and Lord of the Pies by Nell Hampton. I'm not sure if that's entirely the one I was thinking of, but it'll do. <laughs> My favorite. Yep. My favorite genre of cozy mysteries, the food pun related ones. Yes. is a food pun that ticks all boxes. It's pouring rain. So apologies. If you hear thunderstorm in the background, we have excellent weather for this uh, gloomy Monday, but the next pick that I have, um, we'll stick with fiction here and fictional accounts uh, is the other Windsor girl by Georgie Lalook. 
apologies if that's not the correct pronunciation, but this is a historical fiction tale that follows Vera where um, her life is sort of mapped out for her. She's going to get married and, um, and sort of progress as she would like living her dream, but her fiance is killed in the war in the forties. And so her whole entire life plan obviously um, has gone off track and she sort of has a chance meeting with princess Margaret and her whole life sort of changes. And she becomes a, one of princess Margaret's um, second lady in waiting. And so this is um, a fictional character with real references to the real princess Margaret um, and sort of imagining what it would be like to be this lady in waiting who is sort of part employee, part confidant, part friend. And um, that's just a really interesting take on a really notable figure. Um, Princess Margaret did a lot to pave her own path as sort of the sister to the queen. And there have been a lot of different stories about her and, you know, interpretations of her. And I know people are fascinated with her. I think she's a really interesting um, person that you can kind of still be within the confines of this very like stiff upper lip type of family, but obviously make choices for yourself. So I know that she was um, really notable and got a lot of notoriety in many ways for just making the decisions that she wanted to make. So uh, that was the other Windsor girl. And I do love when they combine, um, you know, made up stuff with very real situations and people um, and just sort of casting it as if it happened this way. So that is why I really enjoy this. So I'm going to take a step back and I guess go a little further back in, in our line here and talk about The Queen Mother by William Shawcross. This uh, is the official and definitive biography of Queen Elizabeth, the Queen Mother, the most beloved British monarch of the 20th century, old claims. So she was the consort of King George VI, mother of Queen Elizabeth II, and grandmother of Prince Charles, Elizabeth Angela Marguerite Bowles Lyon, the ninth of the Earl of Strathmore's 10 children, and she was born um, August 4th, 1900. Nice and flat on the money there. And certainly no one could have imagined that her long life, she did die in 2002, would come to reflect a changing nation over the course of an entire century. Vividly detailed, written with unrestricted access to her personal papers, letters, and diaries, this is a candid royal biography that is also kind of a singular history of Britain in the 20th century. So good one if you want to reflect on kind of where the Windsors started, so to speak, uh, with The Queen Mother by William Shawcross. I feel like The Queen Mother is one of those figures that has always been so interesting to me Mm -hmm. because she's not in the royal line, you know, but she's so instrumental and was such a powerful like voice and figure within the family when she was alive just utterly utterly fascinated by her absolutely and the best you know me always looking for a pop culture reference the only good foil i can think of is maggie smith as the dowager countess in you know downton abbey but uh, yeah truly just to look at her life and see everything spread out across so much time was really fascinating yeah for sure Um, So my next one is Royal Sisters by Anne Edwards. This is a nonfiction book about Margaret and Elizabeth, um, who, you know, these pair of royal sisters had no choice in their historic positions. They were just sort of born into this and into that line. Um, But behind the palace gates and within the all too human confines of their personalities, they displayed tremendous individuality and suffered the usual symptoms of sibling rivalry. And so in her book, um, Anne Edwards provides an unprecedented and intimate portrait of these most famous siblings during their formative and dramatic youth years. It is also one of the 20th century's most fascinating stories of sisterly loyalty and it sort of starts you know with them when they are younger um i think it goes up through the townsend affair um with princess margaret and again like with the queen mother 
And I think, you know, Emma, you just sort of touched on this, like Margaret is, is one of the, again, like not in the Royal line of succession. Well, very far down, but like, it's just so, there's so much just sort of on that periphery of the main Royal family. That is just so interesting. Right. Cause there's so much emphasis on the line of succession in these families that it's, it makes, you know, any type of sibling or spouse, like it, it's weird that that would be on the, the fringe. Yes. Um, and it is just because of the way that that like emphasis to that direct line of like, it's, it's wild. It is where you think of, you know, the mother of the queen or the sister, like those are the fringes fascinating that that's the dynamic, you know, of the monarchy and to see something like that, I think in place still, Yes. Is where you have lots of good conversations about all of that. Right. Well, I think like the idea of the heir and the spare, I mean, yeah, because, you know, King Henry was the second son. He was not supposed to be the first one. And then his uh, brother died. And so then you look at, um, yeah, like William and Harry and now William has kids, but, and that sort of affects things, but it's just being Imagine being the sibling of the crowned mm-hmm. <laughs> royal member, like the royal highness. Like that would just, I don't even know like how, what your relationship with your sibling would look like. Well, and it's interesting as well. I mean, even if we're not even going that far back, but like Elizabeth and Margaret had things gone differently. Like they were not supposed they were not- to be the That's ones yeah. in this position. And so right. like when her- their father you know, had to step into that role because his brother abdicated. Like, again, you have all of these weird circumstances where you're, you're raised and like taught and prepared for these roles that could, you know, change, even though they, they, they try to stick to whatever, but like, here we are, um, you know, several generations down from that and just seeing like the lasting effects of those decisions is fascinating. 100%. While Truly. we are talking about Elizabeth and Margaret, I do have one more pick that uh, specifically talks about them. It is the Windsor Diaries. So this, these are never before published diaries from, I'm going to struggle with this name, even though I looked up how to pronounce it and my afternoon brain has completely just not helping me here. But um, this is the Windsor Diaries by Alethea. Uh, Fitzalan Howard. And this is so interesting because she spent her teenage years living adjacent to Windsor with her relatives. And so she befriended Elizabeth and Margaret when they were princesses during uh, 1940 to 1945. And so the diaries have some unique insight and some you know, intimate details of her life and her friendships uh, with those two princesses during that time set, you know, during wartime Britain. And so what was interesting to me about these diaries is the insight that she gives onto how Elizabeth in particular is already just on her path to being, you know, the monarchy and being the crown, even from a very, very young age. And how as friends, there would never be anything that the queen needed more from a friendship because of her position, you know, as much as her friends maybe needed her or wanted to have that relationship with her, her priority, at least according to these diaries was the crown and all of the things that came with that. So these diaries are really interesting. They cover specifically um, 1940 again through 1945, but um, in the forward of this book, her distant relative who was given all of these diaries said that she wrote a diary for every year of her life. There are 70 diaries. And this was just the part that chronicled her being neighbors with, you know, princess Margaret and princess Elizabeth. Wow. I would love to follow up your Margaret and Elizabeth with my Elizabeth and Margaret. This is Elizabeth and Margaret, The Intimate World of the Windsor Sisters by Andrew Morton. He also wrote Diana, Her True Story, which I believe Emma will be bringing up later. (laughs) I wasn't going to, but yes, read his stuff. (laughs) 
I, I couldn't remember. So, you know, there you go. Free shout out to Diana, her true story. But this is Elizabeth and Margaret by Andrew Morton. They were the closest of sisters and best of friends. But when in a quixotic twist of fate, their uncle Edward VIII decided to abdicate the throne, the dynamic switches be- between them dramatically. Forever, uh, forever more, Margaret would have to curtsy to her sister and bow to her wishes. Elizabeth would always look upon her younger sister's antics with a kind of stoic amusement, but Margaret struggled to find a place and position inside the royal system, and her fraught relationship with its expectations was often a source of tension. Famously, the queen had to inform Margaret that the church and government would not countenance her marrying a divorcee, a group captain Peter Townsend, forcing Margaret to choose between keeping her title and royal allowances or divorcee lover. From the idol of their cloistered early life through their hidden wartime lives into the divergent paths they took following their father's death and Elizabeth's ascension to the throne, this book explores their relationship over the years. So Morton's latest biography offers unique insight into these two drastically different sisters, one resigned to duty, like Emma just mentioned with her last book, and the other resistant to it, and the lasting impact they have had on the crown, the royal family, and the ways it has adapted to changing um, over, you know, and into the 20th century. So a kind of solid follow-up for your last pick, Emma. And that was Elizabeth and Margaret by Andrew Morton. And also remember, shout out to his other work, Diana, Her True Story. <laughs> I think when you, like the, the Townsend thing, and you see it a little bit with um, Harry and Meghan and, you know, the abdicate, like this idea of there being, I mean, even Camilla, like this idea of being like unsuitable partners for the the crowned or presumptive heir and who goes for it and who's like makes a different choice and decides not to like that I think is so interesting to to witness and and just how different decisions are made depending on the the royal person making that choice yeah and even like Prince Philip was not the choice right you know but then he was a crucial part of the monarchy and like their marriage for decades and decades and like so it is interesting how things change over time, but then also how little they change right. as well. Yeah, for sure. So my next one is In Waiting by Anne Glenn Connor. Anne was at the center of the royal circle from childhood. She is the firstborn child of the fifth Earl of Leicester, but because she is a girl... <laughs> Um, she was deemed the greatest disappointment and unable to inherit. That has changed though, right? Because Charlotte's in line. I think that's changed. But she, because of that royal connection, um, she became a lady in waiting to Princess Margaret until her death in 2002 and was just like a witness to all of these landmark moments in history that we've been talking about um, and kind of gives that sort of intimate look family and the life um from this position of to them but not being in direct uh direct family member which i think is sort of a unique look at at things i think it's so fascinating i mean and there's so many different angles of all of these different people oh my god we could go on and on and on <laughs> and on i will take us to 2020 with my last pick, Finding Freedom by Omid Scobie and Carolyn Durand. This is the, I guess, unofficial, official true story of um, the Duke and Duchess of Sussex. They're not allowed to like officially authorize um, a, a book, but I think this is as close as they got. Um, given the authors of this book, there are two uh, top royal reporters who were pretty much on the scene from when Harry and Meghan met. There are a lot of, I guess what I would consider like private details in this book. So I would imagine there had to be some type of consultation uh, with them or with their people to know like the context of their first date, their conversations and things like that. Um, but finding freedom just talks about 
how a English prince fell in love with an American actress and the sort of like sensation that they became um, when that news broke and then sort of followed their subsequent love story. And they're certainly interesting figures. I mean, in our current, in our current day and age where they're just absolutely not, you know, conforming to the roles that they were supposed to be in as you know, since this book came out. And I think they added some additional content to the ebook of this, uh, that touches on this, but, um, you know, walking away from their Royal titles, you know, a couple of years after they got married and, um, all of the attention that was upon them with the birth of their, their son, um, and then their daughter and just all of the scrutiny. Um, I think that they're really fascinating, um, people who walked away from that monarchy. And I mean, those things are still playing out. So I'm sure we will continue to see books on Harry and Meghan and not only on their love story, but on their impact on you know, the house of Windsor and how people look at the Royal family. And we may have even further insight when his like tell all book comes out supposedly later this year. So I'm really interested to see, I know the Oprah interview that they did, my like mouth was hanging open the whole time because they were finally putting two words, things that have been like swirling around in books and in unauthorized like biographies and think pieces and stuff on the Royal family. And so, yeah, this is just a really interesting story. It really does chronicle their, you know, meeting their first date, their engagement, um, you know, the wedding and things like that. So if you're interested in where it all began for Harry and Megan in the closest um, official account or unofficial account, I think we'll get, um, it's finding freedom, um, by Omid Scobie and Carolyn Durand. And the, I should have said that the subtitle on this was Harry and Megan and the making of a modern Royal family, which I think is really fascinating because I would consider them a modern Royal family. Um, even though they walked away <laughs> from their, from their official Royal duties and all of And another interesting point though, is like, what does that mean? He's still a prince. So they've sort of stepped away from their, you know, formal titles and patronages and official duties, but he is ultimately still the grandson of the queen. And so again, like, I think a theme that we've, we've brought up through all of these picks is that it's just absolutely fascinating the way that that plays on the family dynamic. I, yeah, it's so fascinating that Oprah interview, also the thought that like Tyler Perry provided them his own personal security so that they were safe. And he's like, they stayed with like in Tyler Perry's estates, like it's wild. <sighs> I forgot about the Tyler Perry part. Yep. I, I will never forget that. I will never forget that. <laughs> so before I give my last title, I want to sneak in a second last title uh, that I forgot to mention with my last one. This is 99 Glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown, because it's super important to remember the, you know, just like awesome person she is. She made John Lennon blush and Marlon Brando tongue-tied. She iced out Princess Diana and humiliated Elizabeth Taylor. Andy Warhol photographed her. Jack Nicholson offered her cocaine. Gore Vidal revered her. Francis Bacon heckled her. Uh, Peter Sellers was madly in love with her. And for Pablo Picasso, she was the object of sexual fantasy. Like this book talks it all. It combines interviews, parodies, dreams, parallel lives, diaries, announcement lists, catalogs, and essays. Uh, So that really long extended shout out is the 99 glimpses of Princess Margaret by Craig Brown. But I wanted to wrap it up with a person who I'm surprised I'd pick to talk about, uh, but I figured no one else would because, you know, who who really wants, who really thinks to do? Uh, this is The Duke by Ian Lloyd, and it talks about Prince Philip. Um, and it was even updated, uh, or it has an updated final chapter, including his uh, funeral. So for seven decades, the Duke of Edinburgh was the Queen's strength and stay, far surpassing the predictions of courtiers who had feared a foreign interloper out for the goodies. Uh, journalists continuously portrayed him as a bluff and gaff prone, yet the letters he wrote in private showed he had a kind and sensitive side. 
So it draws on extensive interviews from the people who knew him best. The Duke reveals the man in all his endlessly fascinating contradictions. While tracing his characteristic self-reliance back to a difficult childhood and six years war service, Ian Lloyd highlights some rare aspects of the royal consort's personality, from his fondness for Duke Ellington to his fascination with UFOs. So the result is a portrait like no other and a rich tribute to Prince Philip's remarkable life and legacy. Of course, like I mentioned, with that updated final chapter on his funeral and the future of the monarchy without him. And that is The Duke by Ian Lloyd. Prince Philip was into UFOs? (laughs) Prince Philip was into UFOs. (laughs) I was just like imagining him listening. What's that night radio show where people call it? Yes. I wonder how many times he called Miss Cleo. Uh, (laughs) But right. He's just like, I'm now imagining him asking like, Harry, could you show me how to download podcasts again? I want to listen to that alien one. I like. Was he a fan of the X-Files? I wonder. Probably. Okay. You better believe it. You better (laughs) believe it. I'm putting that into my brain that he was. was. (laughs) Um, Okay. So my last one, this is (laughs) I love that I'm yeah because this is like so out of in a really great way this is actually a it's fiction it is a novel it is a historical reimagining so it's like an alternative history that imagines what would happen if the war of the roses never happened and so if the Yorks and the Lancasters um did not come together and uh the conflict between the south and north of England uh, continued. And so this is um, about the, sort of takes place around now. um, And it's about Arthur, the Prince of Wales in this book. And he's found himself in need of an heir. And to do that, he of course needs to find a wife. Um, He is part of the Lancaster family. And at um, an event, he meets Amelia, who is part of the uh, Yorkish side. She's the daughter of a, a Yorkish heir, uh, Earl. And he, they, you know, come together. And Arthur is like, this is great. Maybe if I marry this um, woman, it'll sort of unify the country in the way that did not happen in this story, <laughs> but actually happened in real life many, many years ago. Um, but of course, Amelia is not really part of the royal family. And so it's sort of that commoner idea of like having to learn how to be a princess. And then they have to convince the entire country that this is a good thing for him to marry this, you know, quote unquote, unsuitable person um, from York. And it's a romance and we love to see it. And again, I think it's just I had to bring in something a little bit different little bit different so we have this historical alternative history if you want something to see what would happen if the war of the roses just didn't happen or did not was not resolved and they're still fighting all these years later love it i said it before i love that the genre of uh, of royals just truly lets us publish fan fiction in real life like <laughs> the idea yeah. of this alternate universe and yeah, yeah. Although it occurs to me, I don't think I actually gave the title. So the title is um, A Queen from the North by Erin McRae and Richeline Maltese. So, uh, and it also has like a pretty cover that um, uses the the red and white roses of the the Yorks and the the Lancasters. That pick reminds me of one that I'll just give a brief shout out to because I didn't have that on my list originally, but it's the American Royals series by Catherine McGee. Um, that's a YA sort of romance that it reimagines what would happen if the, um, if the United States had its own Royal family, um, starting with George Washington after the revolutionary war, and there was the House of Washington. Um, so I know that series is still going. Um, the newest one, Rivals, American Royals 3, will be out at the end of May this year. So I love that, that that's reimagined. What if America did have its own royal family? Um, so yeah, shout out to the alternate, alternate histories and basically royal fan fiction. 
It, it is. It's fun to think about though, you know, like what would America be? And I know my sister loves those books too. So they're so good. Um, love the thought of that. I know. I think I love it in theory, but I'm glad we don't have one in practice. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Agreed. But it still harkens back to that like middle school fantasy of like the princess diaries like oh surprise you're a princess i want to marry a royal yeah Yeah. guess i'll just reread red white and royal blue (laughs) i know i was like we can all dream i'm already married (laughs) like that's so good i mean like yeah well you both can live through my hopes i'm gonna i'm gonna find a royal maybe i'll be the prince of monaco (laughs) i mean there yeah there are still several royal families still out there there are um but yes if you would like to just read about them or things inspired by them we hope you enjoyed this episode and this very diverse selection of royal reads we hope you enjoy it happy listening and happy reading happy reading bye everybody why did i wave readers can sample and borrow the titles mentioned in today's episode on overdrive.com and our library friends can purchase these titles in marketplace Professional Book Nerds is proud to be an Evergreen Podcast signature program. To learn about other Evergreen Podcasts, visit evergreenpodcast.com. Our podcast is produced, recorded, and edited by Emma Dwyer, Jill Grunewald, and Joe Skelly, and presented by Overdrive. To learn more, visit professionalbooknerds.com. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.